Hello, everyone. Welcome to this fun episode. We're going to be talking a lot about using friction logs to unlock product-led growth. And here I have none other than the CEO of Chameleon, Volkit. He is awesome. We've had him on the podcast before. We've had him on some of our programs as well. And every time, I always learn something new. So I'm super excited to have you here, Volkit. Thanks, Wes. Yeah, it's always great to be here and, and uh, talking to your fantastic audience of product practitioners. And you always have like great conversation. I feel like I learned something as well. So I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. So I'm just going to like make fun of the title here. So using friction logs to unlock product-led growth. Friction logs, like this sounds like the least sexy thing possible. And like why should people get excited about friction logs? Tell me. Yeah, it is funny because... I think the unsexy is the new sexy, or, or, or maybe that was 2020. Master the fundamentals. I, I <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so friction logs, not only are they unsexy sounding, they're also not, not that sexy because they're not, they're not automated. It's like, yeah. nope, we're going back. We're manually doing stuff. But I think so many teams are looking for both improving growth, but also in this current economic climate, they're looking for improving retention and engagement and all of that comes from knowing the user really well. I think friction logs is a really fantastic way to uncover insights that you have already that you didn't know that you have to help you drive better growth and product experiments and iterations. Got it. So tell us like, what exactly is a friction log first? <laughs> yeah, so a friction log is a stream of consciousness. It's a stream of consciousness on a piece of paper that you can dissect and analyze and look for uh, issues in your product user experience and product journey. So the way it works is that for a specific context and a, and a specific flow in the product, let's say maybe it's getting started and setting up my first account, or it's maybe inviting a user, or it's maybe uh, changing the styling of something. You want to have somebody who's relatively unfamiliar with that flow. So it's great for new people joining your team or if anybody you know is willing to go through it for you, is to have them walk through that in a semi-directed fashion. So you're like, this is the ultimate goal, but it's not, you have to click this, then you have to do this. And let that person just go through the product and write out everything they're thinking and feeling. And once it's written out, then you go back and you highlight places where there's frustration or high friction and places where there was joy and, you know, a, a smooth user experience. And what that will give you at the end of this is a, a very good view into what all of the specific actions and also thinking that's going into someone taking actions in your product and also the emotional layer of when people are motivated and enjoying it and happy and when they're frustrated and would turn around or churn. And that gives you a really, it gives you a map of where do I need to work on improving my product or where do I need to improve on adding additional guidance or where can I make experiments and, and try different new things? Totally. Now, how is this different than like, let's say something like user testing where like I'm going to hire or maybe I'm just going to do it myself or like have someone on the team do it where they like record a video of like, hey, like here's your end goal. You need to like get the value, accomplish something in the product, create a new account, like record yourself, just kind of talk it all out aloud. Tell me like where you're frustrated and stuff like that, just as you do it in real time. And then you review it. Like, is that how you would do it? Like, is it like you start with the video and then it's like, okay, let's log it all out and like find where were the big steps and like opportunities for improvement? Or tell me, like, is that in line with what you're thinking or was it something else? So 
all of these are flavors of getting feedback in some way. I think the difference with between friction logging and user testing is a few. One is almost always user testing is with actual users of the product, whereas friction logging you can do with your existing team or colleagues or other people. So they don't have to be, you know, it's now user testing and also doesn't have to be with users, but generally it's with users. User testing is also generally very specific in terms of what it's looking to learn. It's like, okay, we're looking to learn which of these two prototypes is smoother, or we're looking to learn what are the things that are confusing about this taxonomy. So it's much more directed. And then I think the third thing is it can happen, but often user testing doesn't bring in the emotion as clearly. And so while you may have questions about how did this make you feel at a specific moment of a user's journey or a specific action they take, it's not as good a map of like, how are they feeling throughout? So yeah, you, you can still accomplish similar things, but friction logging provides a nice package for it. It gives you a template of like, okay, this is the way to do it. And I think that just encourages that to happen. Now with amazing transcription tools, you can do it you know, without someone having to write it out. They can just record how they're feeling as they're going about with a screen share and you can have that transcripted and then you can go back and do some highlighting. But it is important to go back and make sure you do assess and review how you felt in those moments or, or at least speak to how you're feeling in the moment as you go through that journey. Totally. Yeah, and I could definitely imagine like some of the uh, side benefits of this too is like when you involve your team, you're getting them really bought into like, hey, we need to improve this. And again, definitely relate because we recently had our entire team like go through our product-led accelerator training. And it was like kind of a similar thing. Like after every lesson, we would be like, okay, well, like what was unclear? Like what didn't make sense? Were like your emotions high or low during like some of these workshops? Like what could be done better? And it was like, it was amazing because then you have everyone in your team bought into like, oh no, like we need to improve these three things. And then it's way easier to get that, which is way more powerful than like user testing in some ways, because it's like, no, I felt that emotion. They can relate to it. And then they're like, I'm fired up, ready to go. Because like, if I can sell this for myself, I can sell this for like hundreds or even thousands of other people, which is really cool. Yeah. And I think when someone writes up a friction log, even if it's not a very complicated flow, you'll see that will be like 30 or 40 or 50 points in that friction log. And we have a template, I'm sure we can share the link for friction log. But when you ask somebody to describe, hey, what are the steps required to go from A to B? Typically they'll be like, oh yeah, there's two or three steps. Like they click this, they enter this, and then they do this. And like, great, that sounds easy. And then you do the friction log and there's like, nope, there's 35 different things that have to happen as you read things, as you analyze, as you compare, as you make a decision, as you make a mistake, as you hit an error. And it's like, wow. And I think that's really important because we see a lot of companies trying to improve their user onboarding with Chameleon, and they are trying to do too much and go too fast across the flow with very limited information. So they'll be, okay, here's a here's a welcome tour built with Chameleon, and we want people to activate. And it's like, okay, well, it's a six-step tour. Hey, that's already too long. But actually, what you're trying to do is you're compressing so much into this one tour because you actually the user has to do so many different things. So, And you don't need to explain every step. And not every step is equal. Like maybe actually 70% of the 30 odd steps that a user has to take are actually pretty straightforward. But yeah. maybe there's two places that are really problematic and confusing. And that's where you should focus your attention and energy. 
So I think that's one of the reasons that we encourage our customers to think more about yeah. it from this perspective, because we want them to really get into the details and build experiences that are targeted to very specific moments of pain or moments of friction, rather than general experiences that are kind of covering broadly the value of a product. Totally. And like, what are some of the main forms of friction that you and your team have kind of identified? Like when you go through build of this friction lock, what does that look like? Yeah, one of the, obviously it's different for each product, but as a category, one of the things that is often underlooked and I would encourage listeners or viewers to think about is when does a user have to make decisions? Every time a user is making a decision, they're expending some cognitive energy to like have to you know weigh things up, do a pros and cons, or try to understand what the impact and implications of this is. And often that isn't clear in the UI. Like you, you don't understand, like, well, if I make this choice, what do I get? From it. And that could be a simple choice as like, what do I name something versus, or a choice of like, what type or category is this thing? And so I think that is often a hidden source of friction is choices a user has to make. And therefore, I actually encourage a lot of our customers that when they're presenting any kind of tips or in-product experiences, actually make some of those around making that choice easier. And that can look like, hey, most people pick X, or it could look like, hey, don't worry about choosing now. You can change this later. Or it could be like, hey, don't have a good idea for this? Try it. Why? So you can give people a helping hand in even making that decision, which will unlock some of that friction. Totally. Yeah, I can definitely relate. We had Andy, who's the CEO of Gated.com on the Product Ed Podcast, episode 122. If anyone wants to look into it, but it was the same thing. Like, you just know that you like, you remember everyone's like episode number. That's pretty impressive. I mentioned it. <laughs> it's like, let me get this right. But yeah, in that that episode, like Andy was talking about, like, okay, when people set up Gated for their email, picking your charity, there's like hundred, there's thousands of potential charities that like, if somebody wants to access your email and contact you, you got to like donate to one of these charities. And so that was one of the big decisions where they're like, okay, let's just pick one for them. And let's make this decision for them. And they just pick Doctors Without Borders. They're like, they're doing great things. <laughs> Most people should support Doctors Without Borders. And they just made that decision. And then if you want, you can go in there at a later point and change up the charity. But like the main kind of thing is like, they just made that decision for you. And there is always those decisions where it's like, is this something that they need to make right now? And a lot of times when they're setting up their account, there's a lot of those things like, do you need day mode or night mode? Like right away? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, the value. I mean just, yeah. every, every kind of product builder should realize that your user has a, you have a limited set of how much you can ask them for doing work. Yeah. And once that gets exhausted, if they haven't got the value out that they anticipated, they're leaving. And so you, you really don't have that many at-bats. And every time you, you ask them to do work, which can include reading, it can include processing, it can include decision-making, can include clicking, it can include scrolling. Anytime you ask them to do work, that's one kind of, you know, you're depleting that pool of motivation. But actually, if you give them a reward or some success, you're replenishing that pool of motivation. 
or of energy to keep going. And that's why it's really important to think about the aha moment and getting to people to an aha moment quickly, because once they have that, then they have more energy and they can do work. And actually Nirael talks about that in the hook model. It's like have people do work after you give them a reward and that gets them even more invested. And then there's a a psychology, psychological principle about this. Like when you do work to create something, then you feel a lot more attached to it. Also, I think it's called, I don't know, the Ikea effect or something, but the idea is that, you know, once you've done some work, you've undertaken some friction that you've felt you've got rewarded from, then you're able to, you know, be more attached to that outcome. Yeah, I love it. And I think like some of those things too, you're, we're starting to see that a lot in the product-led space. Even with like a lot of like B, like consumer apps, like you'll see this all the time when like Duolingo. It's like, okay, sign up for it. And it's actually, <laughs> you got to go through and start learning the language that you want to learn before you actually can even sign up for the thing. And it's like, why do they do that? Their whole thing is like, they want you to actually learn something and feel like you're accomplishing something. And then it's like, oh yeah, that's no brainer. Like, here's my info. I want to get reminded for the next lesson, whenever that is tomorrow. And so it's just like, uh, back to that hooked model, it is really like setting them up for the reward. And then it's like, okay, small ask, investment of their time or energy or whatever. And then it's like, boom, we're like locking in for the next reward, which they're going to get tomorrow, which is the next lesson. So there's a lot of psychology that goes into that. But it's just, yeah, how do you understand uh, when is the right time to ask them for those big decisions? And that's my, my next question for you is like, when you have that friction log, or maybe your entire team has done these friction logs, how do you go through and decide Hey, like this is like bad friction. This is like good friction because it, with any like SaaS tool, let's face it, like there's the tool itself. It can be useful, but there's always going to be some sort of like maybe, maybe not always, but like a lot of the times there's some knowledge gaps where it's like if you don't understand how to like send a good email that's not spammy or something, like it doesn't matter what email marketing platform you have. Like you're just like starting from square zero. So how do you understand when you have the friction logs built out? What are some of those decisions you make for people? And what are some of those decisions that you actually require the person to make whenever they're they're going through that onboarding process? Yeah, it's a good question. I think at a high level, you want to have people feeling like this is personal to their goal or their use case. And so personalization decisions, I think if you can figure it out accurately, and default to something so that they can confirm instead of having to decide. That's generally, I think, a better option. I think there are cases of friction being positive. There's a very common example of, I think it was at Netflix or someone else took a while, maybe it was Twitter, that once you gave your choices, they took some, they had a a state, kind of a, a timer state while they quote unquote calculated you know, the algorithm calculated your, you know, the best recommendations for you. And they didn't need to do that. They were ready immediately, or they were ready much faster than they showed, but they made it feel like, okay, the software is actually taking into account my choices. And so I think there are cases of good friction that are eventually additive. I think the ways to differentiate bad versus good is the good needs to be something that is intentional and you're choosing and opting to have that there. It's not just like, oh, it existed. We didn't know about it or we didn't realize, you know, so I think opt into that. And the reason you're going to opt into it is if you think it's going to lead to better outcomes in the end. 
And it could be better engagement or retention or like success or happiness or whatever the outcome is. Ideally, from a user perspective, you know, we're in this age of customer centricity. So if it's helpful for the user, hopefully you will be helpful for the business or the product in the future. But if you think about it, will this friction eventually help the user? Or actually, this friction is not that useful to the user. It's just because we haven't thought through the design fully. And that would be negative or bad friction, which you can resolve and drive more you know, conversions. Okay. So how as a team do you kind of collaborate on this? Like I know for like our program, like we're pretty big on like producing friction as well, but we use like a simple like red, green, yellow light system. <laughs> it's probably oversimplified, but it's easy for teams to kind of go through all the required steps of like getting to value. And then we'll be like, oh, that's like totally, we could get rid of that. It wouldn't impact anything except making the user get there faster. That's a great one. Then there's some like examples where it's like back to that gated.com example of like, if we required someone to like change their charity right from the beginning and like identify what that is, that's like an advanced step. Like let's delay that whenever they're ready, they can go there and change it if they want. And then there's like, we trying to like scrape it down to like just the required steps. And that's really the conversations there is the gold because you're just trying to understand like, oh, the developer has done that for a very specific reason. Like the system will break unless a user goes through that step right now at least. So you have that. But whenever you have your team go through, build out these friction logs, what does that kind of like collaboration, like crazy process look like to get the end outcome of like, okay, now we understand where our friction is. Now we understand like, how do we get users to value faster? And what are some of those like friction elements that we keep and some that, you know what, we just toss out because it's it's not really helping. So we think of it more on a kind of continual ongoing basis. And one example that we have, practice is whenever a new person joins the company as part of their onboarding they have to complete a friction log of the product as they get set up and get going and that's important because the new user experience needs to continually be refreshed because the market changes and people's expectations change and new patterns become prevalent so i think for us it's not as much of a project and you can't treat it as a project like i want to fix my analytics page and therefore I'm going to go and like do the friction logging with a few people on that. But it can also be an ongoing thing where it's okay, like this is something that we want to continue improving. And then the way it translates from there is it goes into our design research so that whenever we're reviewing things, you know, reviewing that aspect of the product, we'll review the friction logs related to that and look for improvements we can make. Now it's well, it's really simple. It's really like, oh, this was so obvious. Like it's a low-hanging fruit or it's a quick win. Like we, we should have definitely got rid of the step. Mostly it's it's compromises. It's like, well, we had that for a reason. And then it's like we have to validate, like, does this still necessary? Does it help the user understand something? Mm-hmm. And so there you might want to do a in-product experiment or make a change or do some more user testing or user research about that point to help you decide like, hey, is it worth running this experiment or making a change? So yeah, never straight. Unfortunately, you know, most cases, I mean, no, I'm sure there are some cases where it's really straightforward, but I feel for us, it's like a lot of it is like compromising and trying to think about, you know, a hypothesis of a better path forward. Well, I think, yeah, especially with your business and what your Osmo is, the onboarding side of things, which is very rare for a lot of companies where they're like looking at their onboarding as something maybe they haven't touched in like maybe a full quarter, maybe a full year or something like that. And they're like, oh man, there's just so much low-hanging fruit. So different for every business. But how do you keep that like ongoing, relentless approach to improving like that onboarding experience? Like friction logs is part of it. 
But is there any other kind of like ongoing cadence that you use internally to really just like ramp up onboarding and really, yeah, help just the user become successful? Yeah. So if we look at some of the best companies, the way that they can do it is if they have someone accountable for it. I think that's where it eventually comes down to. Like who owns this? Who has been given the mandate and the time that simple, right? to work on it? <laughs> so I think, you know, depending on the stage and size of your company, if you're a big company, then ideally you do have a team that's part of an activation team or a retention team or a growth team or something. If you're a smaller company, you know, maybe it's something that is assigned as to a designer or like somebody, you know, that's a PM is like, hey, part of your role is to continue reviewing our onboarding. And, and what we want to do is make an improvement every month or an change every quarter. And so it becomes a bit more continuous. That's if, you know, core product changes, or if you have somebody that's responsible for, sometimes it can be product marketing can be good as well. Like they're generally responsible for feature adoption. So maybe they can own in-product experiences or their lifecycle email campaign for onboarding. And then you can make improvements there. Like it doesn't have to be in a core product flow as well. Yeah, but it is absolutely key that you keep iterating and testing because not only do you have to improve your metrics, but the goals do change over time as well. Totally. Okay. So get the owner, get someone in charge. But then what are they typically doing, you find, to consistently improve that's conversion rate as far as like people who sign up, people get to value. Like, is there any sort of like standard activities that you've found? Like there's friction logs, which is, I mean, it's amazing if you're always hiring and getting more people going to the friction logs. But imagine maybe, I don't know, do they do it again? Like, what does that look like as far as the ongoing component to consistently like researching, like how to improve the, the onboarding experience? Yeah, I think it's the same as in any other kind of experiment team. So if you think about like, what is like the website conversion team doing? Well, the website conversion team is looking to learn as much as possible about who's viewing the website and trying different experiments based on patterns they're seeing or hypotheses they have. So I think the key thing for anyone that's like owning or responsible for this is to regularly keep learning as much as possible about who the people are, are there differences in the types of people that are coming? What are they looking for? What are their motivations? What are their frictions? Now that can be through friction logs and you might have a whole backlog of friction to figure out, or it could be through user testing, it could be through session replay and heat mapping. You can do a whatever it is, but look, keep learning about the user and then keep running experiments. You know, you come up with a list of, you know, you focus maybe on a metric. Let's say you're, you're, well, let's say your overall goal is to improve activation. Maybe this quarter, you're trying to improve the number of people that go from account created to fast action taken. And so there might be a bunch of experiments in that, that you'll spec out and build, deploy it, and then test. And then maybe you get to a good rate and then you'll work on the next phase of that funnel. So I think there is plenty of work Things that will make it easier is if you are committing to something socially or in your company. So let's say it's an OKR for you. It's like, hey, this I'm going to improve the activation rate by 2% in this quarter. And if that becomes something that's an OKR or a key metric that you're reporting on, then you're going to be incentivized to keep focusing on that. Other things you can do is having a recurring focus group or a recurring meeting that helps someone, you know, helps this group or you keep track of what progress is being made and having some recurring documentation or an ongoing documentation about what this, where it's got to in history of like, hey, this is what we focus on this week. This is what we're doing the next week, et cetera. So those are some more tactical ways to help bring this into more of a system. But I think having, you know, accountability for hitting a key goal in this will, will be the, the biggest driver. Really? Yeah, could not agree on that more. Awesome. So is there any other ways you feel like 
friction logs help you drive PLG, like whether it's identifying key growth funnels, loops, or developing user empathy like across the team. Is there anything like you feel like, yeah, like this is really why I felt like friction logs helps you drive PLG? Obviously, we know that the first part is like understanding the user and like understanding the main friction points, but is there anything else you feel like friction logs really help you accomplish? I think it's connecting you with the emotion of the user and the yeah. user experience. Now, one part I already referenced was like how detailed a user journey is in the product. Like that sometimes isn't super clear from the beginning. So getting really detailed into that and being able to understand where the friction lies. I mean, I think generally what you want to do is combine this with quantitative analytics. So you look at broadly, you know, key numbers in your product of people taking certain actions or using certain features and you identify okay, well, this is where there is a source, there's a drop-off where people aren't, you know, doing this as much as I would have hoped them to be doing this. And then you get into the why, like, okay, why are people not doing this? And that's really hard to glean from just the data, from the quantitative data. And so you have to then rely on qualitative, whether it's in-product microsurveys, whether it's friction logging, whether it's user testing, et cetera. So this will help kind of give you the platform to then come up with the right experiments to help drive growth. Got it. Okay. Now, is there any other thoughts you want to leave us as far as like what people should avoid doing when doing friction logs, uh, things to keep in mind when they're doing friction logs or anyone else when they're thinking of actually doing this in their business? One thing that some can be an easy mistake to make is trying to perfect the journey and trying to perfect the friction log. So don't do retakes like, oh, I messed this up. Let me start again and go back and do it again like that kind of misses the point of like just your stream of consciousness. And then I think the other thing is, yeah, don't try and it doesn't matter if you miss something. It's just just keep going and describe everything as you can as much as possible uh, in terms of how you're feeling. And I think it's not the most rocket. So it's just you're literally trying to bring out to paper what you're thinking. So, you know, it's not too complicated. Awesome. So everyone's action item listening is (laughs) Google friction logs chameleon and you'll find it. They're ranked number one for it. You can uh, read the the really big blog post on friction logs that your team has built out and as well as the templates all there. So that's that action item. Is there any other last thoughts you want to leave people with, whether it's about developing user empathy or how to optimize your onboarding or anything else you want to leave everyone with? I think I would say that if you are looking to drive product-led growth, a key place to begin is just go one level deeper and understand your users. And it's something that it sounds really obvious, but in practice, we often don't have time for it because research is either handed off to a different person or team or doesn't feel part of the core product or growth workflow. But it is absolutely imperative that you understand what is the motivation for a user and how different this motivation is between different kinds of users what context different people have, and what are their expectations. The more you can identify this, the more successful your growth experiments will be. So if you're looking for, hey, we're trying to drive PLG, we're trying to move to self-service, it's really important for us. Don't worry about trying to deliver changes in the beginning. Just focus on trying to learn and understand more. And I think we're, we're seeing more and more of this kind of continuous feedback or continuous research culture becoming the norm. I was recently on a panel recently from Maze, and they released a research report that talks to a bunch of product people about this. And just it's becoming common, like the, ha- the ability to continually research and continually learn from users not so and supplement both qualitative and quantitative data to better create you know, better product experiences. 
Totally. I love that concept of continuous research. It should never be <laughs> one and done. And I always look back at a lot of my like worst decisions in business and something like that. Is it often always is like, oh, it was shooting from the hip or something like that. It's like it never took into account a lot of the the user kind of customer feedback as well. So that is such a good point. How do you, as a CEO, build a culture of user empathy? Because like there's like understanding the user, there's like what you're doing right now with friction logs and onboarding. I love it because it's like, it really is one of those things where it's like from day one, <laughs> we're getting you to think about our users and our customers and everything else. That's like, that's obviously why we exist as a business. That's we exist to serve. So what are some of those other ways, maybe it's tactical or just cultural, as far as how you build that culture of user empathy? Yeah, good question. I think it has to begin from the beginning. I think when someone's coming into your company and that's when they're learning what's normal and what's expected. So I think what they see and whether that can be part of their onboarding, for example, in our onboarding, when someone joins Chameleon, the first three weeks do not contain functional work. So if you're a an engineer, you're not trying to ship code week one. If you're a salesperson, you're not getting on a sales call or doing a demo or anything like that. It's really about learning the context and the problem and why we exist and what is our space. And so part of that includes, you know, getting to know people and users. And I think that's how you build empathy is like you realize like this is someone trying to solve a problem and we're trying to alleviate their pain and help them be successful. One part of that is watching lots of calls and we record all of our external calls. We have this great recording software called Fathom, where you can tag things very easily and you can search across calls. And so that's a big part of it um, is to like just understand who is our customer and what is it that they're experiencing. We try to have folks read and subscribe to content that our customers would subscribe to so that they're getting as much as possible into their shoes. And so that's part of it in the beginning. Part of it is democratizing the feedback that you're getting. So, you know, making recordings accessible to anyone on the team, making it, giving people space to watch those. But also, for example, you can connect Chameleon to your Slack account, which we do. And so anyone that leaves feedback in the Chameleon microsurvey in our product comes into this into the Slack account. So we're hearing from people where they're feeling frustrated. One of our, our microsurveys is a, just like little five emojis, like how are you feeling about Chameleon right now? And it shows us like where someone's frustrated, we're like, okay, wait, what happened? And then let's dig in, whether it's like the CSM for that account, or it's like someone reaches out immediately, like, hey, what, what, why are you frustrated? And it's not, they don't have to explain themselves in the beginning. And that's why microservices are great because you're not asking them for like detailed explanation of everything. You're like, hey, just how are you feeling? And that's easier for someone to get started with by responding. And then you can follow up as it makes sense. So I think that's another way of just trying to understand like, hey, connecting with the emotion of somebody in the product that helps build empathy. And then I think celebrating the wins as well. I think when someone's customer wins, we celebrate the win as well, because that's what we hopefully can you know, align with is like, hey, their joy is our joy as well. So I don't know, those are some ways that we maybe passively and actively build empathy. I'm sure there's many better ways and more ways. And I'd definitely love to hear any thoughts you have, or I'll keep an eye out for anyone else that wants to teach me about this. Oh, totally. Like, I'm always curious about this because like, yeah, there's endless ways you could do it. I know there's like Andrew Kaplan, when he was working at Wistia, like they were just doing full story Fridays. Like that was kind of a, a simple thing where they were just like, look at, oh, here's how this person signed up <laughs> over pizza. And they're like, what? Like they had a huge problem, like going through that, their rage clicking on all this stuff. So 
it is like really fun to see like, okay, how to build that user MC. I know um, RD Station 2, like they would do, their user interviewer would go through and like set up these interviews with like key stakeholders and make sure that any like big decisions that were being made in the business, they would make sure they would interview people who are like going to be impacted by that, um, hear their inside takes so that it wasn't like, you know, the biggest person with the most authority is like going to always get the call. It's like, no, actually what the user said was in direct opposition to what you said. <laughs> let's go back there. <laughs> Instead of making this about like, um, just who's on the team. It's like, let's, let's bring the customer to the table. I know there's a famous like uh, Jeff Bezos example of like, I think it was the eighth or ninth seat at the, the table. I was always like, that's the customer. And then I know a lot of companies too, now days will like promote maybe like the most person who like feels like they understand the customer the best because they actually talk to the customers like all the time and they add them to the C-level suite. They're like, that's our chief customer officer. <laughs> I'm not saying that's the best way of doing it. That is a way to just make sure that like you, as you kind of build a bigger company, you don't forget like, hey, yeah, you're making decisions, but it ultimately like, what's the customer I have to say? And uh, they're they're in the room there. For you, so I think those are, are some other kind of ways. But I'm curious, culturally, like from core values too, how do you see that kind of impacting building a culture of user empathy? Is there anything there that you've done where it's like, hey, no, like our core values like serve first or something, or do you find that that doesn't quite have as big of an impact as you might think? So I think one part of like our core values or principles and how we operate does have an impact and translate, which is yeah. we are. One of the most important things that we should not do is deploy something that can cause an end user, so our customer's user, yeah. to see something that the customer didn't expect, see or not see something that the customer didn't expect or sign off on. And so we have, it's almost like a B2C product in a way because we are, you know, in a, a layer that sits over software that our customers use to communicate with their end users. And so we're in a very intimate and sensitive place. Like if something doesn't look quite right, maybe we made some changes to how we set up our styling and there was some conflict with some CSS that our customer set up. And then actually something ends up looking different. Like that's, we're losing trust from our customer there. Cause they're like, wait a minute, we didn't sign up on this. And so we have, and we've done this for so many years now, we've been so, so sensitive to anything that could has the potential to contribute to that. And so that requires a lot of extra testing, a slower QA process, but also everyone on the team is hypersensitive. Like, hey, is could this potentially impact an end user in a way that the customer didn't know about, even if it's positive, like even if it's positive, it's not about that. It's, we, we, we wanna make sure that we have this like core sense of trust. And so I think having that perspective if something does happen, having a deep retro, making sure that there's uh, improvements to the system and process. But I think that helps build a culture of like, hey, we want to be really careful. We are very sensitive to our customers' needs and we care a lot about you know what they might what might think of us and, and how we might affect their successes. Yeah, it's definitely a fine balance too, because I can see like both sides of it. It's like one part is like, yeah, you want to make your user and customer like super successful. And that's like should always be there. <laughs> Any company, but that the other side of it is like, oh, push the bounds, always experiment, <laughs> do all these other new things that like are exactly. risky. Essentially, and it's like, yeah, but there's the downside. As long as there's a low downside, then yeah, it totally makes sense. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're always wanting to ship stuff and improve, make improvements. But there, yeah, like you said, there is a fine line. And I think that's where it becomes a value and it becomes part of the culture. It's like, okay, we're not going to do that. And we are we're gonna we're gonna yeah. do this very carefully. But if they're on a migration, we're gonna run it on a bunch of test data first. And you know, you just have to be really sensitive about it. Yeah. And I know this kind of like touches on like friction logs as well as a lot of the other stuff we had talked about, but it's a lot of it is like once you understand like okay we have friction it's about decision making and it's like prioritization of time resources all that stuff every company especially now is like thinking about okay in this upcoming recession like what what do we do how do we be more efficient how do we make better bets i think that's honestly what this comes down to it's like yes we need to make better <laughs> decisions as far as like what are some of those big options that we pursue and which ones honestly do we not pursuing deprioritize is just as important if not more important than actually prioritizing the right ones in some cases so how do you like really do that at chameleon what are some of the ways that you really prioritize big initiatives in your company to really make sure that people are optimizing their time to the fullest and you're really being an efficient lean mean machine yeah, good question. I feel like some holy grail that you're asking. Everyone, how do you make the right decisions? How do you make the right decisions? Yes, that's wisdom to make the right decisions. I think so. When making decisions, I think we ensure that. So I guess there's a there's a subset of this which is like product planning and, and road mapping, and then there's like the broader, which is like at a company, how are we making the right decisions? Right. So I think in terms of at a company, you know, it has to be a, you're taking on enough data to make the right decision. Like, do you have a good source of what you know, but it's also knowing what you don't know and knowing the risk associated with this. So it's like, okay, I'm making this decision to pursue, let's say, Hey, we're going to spend the next month improving our email marketing versus like improving some other aspect or let's say our landing pages. So, okay, well, we do know that our rates on email marketing to like click through or whatever else is so-and-so we know that, but what we also don't know is how much greater potential we might have for this or how much time it might take, but whatever it is, you need to know what you don't know to help you understand like the risk of this. Like, okay, well, we, we're going to spend a month on this, but it may not lead to any impact. And we're, and so I think knowing, you know, having good sources of data, knowing what you don't know, and then making a, a very kind of considered assessment of like the risk involved and the reward for this. And then I think with that, you can get to a better decision. I don't know if there's a smart way to generalize that. <laughs> if I you have mind. anything. It's not yeah. mine, but I'll, I'll steal it from yeah. Sam Zell, which he's got this fun book and he's built like this billion dollar like real estate portfolio, sold it and done it all over again a couple of times. But his whole like concept of risk was so simple. I was like, oh, I love this. And I was like, a good risk is simply something with high upside and low downside. And a bad risk is just the opposite. It's like, it's got low upside and high downside is like the only difference here is like you're just trying to sort out like what is a good risk and what's a bad risk and um, i think warren buffett said like risk comes from not knowing what you're not like what you're not doing <laughs> something similar like that risk comes from not knowing what you're doing yeah basically so yeah just I mean, when you understand like a specific field or a specific problem and understand your user and your customer better than anyone else you're able to understand like how to reduce that downside as far as like what is like for you, you know the the downside of anything that's going to impact how whatever the user is putting on their customers, like display or web app, that's kind of like high downside, a kind of potential area of like, okay, let's not tweak that too much or let's make sure we QA like her app out of it uh, to make sure that this thing is not going to impact 
their end users in a negative way because that will reflect very badly on you and that user will not forget that <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, I think of risk as a kind of like how much is unknown in this yeah. situation. Sure. So the, the more that you know, the more you de-risk something and then it's yeah. like much clearer, like the input will lead to the output. But where, you know, so, but if you can understand like how much you don't know, like that is, that is relatively hard. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think that's like the microcosm of the startup is like, you're always trying to like figure out the de-risk yeah. decisions and trying to make good decisions to like, you know, lead to kind of fit and outcomes. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for people to go through this friction log, test it out, understand where the bigger frictions are in their product and what is positive friction, what is negative friction, as well as learning some of those big things you talked about around some risk, what is a good risk versus bad risk. And really, I loved the what we talked about regarding what are some of those activities internally that you could create to really get your team thinking about the user more often. And I loved your onboarding approach to just start this from day one. I find it very fun that uh, as an onboarding company, that's you've thought just as much about your employee onboarding, <laughs> your user onboarding, because well, but one probably has a higher ROI. <laughs> I'm going to take a guess. Influence We're always everyone. onboarding. We're always onboarding. It's like, it's, I mean, yeah, it's funny, but it's all the same. It's like you're introducing yeah. people to value. Totally. At that point, can you control and manage that? And if you can, whether it's to a new feature or to the company yeah. for the first time or to a change in something, then I think you can be really successful. And I love the fact that we, because we spend so much time on user experience and thinking about user experience, we can apply some of those principles in designing the company too, which is kind of privilege. Totally. This has been awesome. Where can people find out more about you? Well, they can find out more about user onboarding and good practices around PLG and uh, friction logging on the Chameleon blog, chameleon.io forward slash blog. If they want to talk to me, then they can email me, pullkit at chameleon.io. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This was a blast. Yeah, always fun, Wes. Yeah, thanks for the great questions. Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, we will definitely create more content just like this episode. And if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing. <laughs>